regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the 
you've been around all school very long, you've no doubt heard me use the phrase, Lex Arende, Lex Arende. Law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, the way that we pray reveals and shapes our core beliefs about God and ourselves and our relationship to one another. And that is exactly what is on display for us in this parable. The law of prayer is the law of belief. And the prayers of these two men are going to reveal deeply what's inside them. If you spent any time around the gospel accounts, then you already know that these two characters are meant to represent a couple of particular groups, right? The Pharisee is one who took his religious duty seriously. He fervently believed that by keeping Torah, the law of Moses, as arduously as he could, that he could usher Israel into this new age with God vindicating his people and dwelling among them as he once had. To be quite honest, the way this Pharisee talks about himself, he's the exact sort of person you want the pew next to you, right? The exact sort of person you want to have in your church. They do good. They look out for the poor. They're there every week. The tax collector, on the other hand, has rather given up the prospect that salvation is anything to be desired or found duty a bit too difficult, and has instead colluded with the occupied Roman government, taking advantage of his own people and growing rich off of their suffering. The tax collectors were to collect the tax for the Roman Empire, and it was a flat fee. And the Romans knew how much they needed to get, and the tax collectors knew how much they needed to give, and they could charge as much as they wanted beyond that, and the Romans would live These people were despised. He barely even recognizes the 
He sort of gets that part out of the way. And then he seems to spend the entire time talking to and about himself. And now he's different, better, than everybody else. He mentions God in the very first word, and the rest of the time is just, I do this, I do this, I do that. The thing that's interesting about this prayer is that it starts off so well. God, I thank you. Any Jewish person of the day would have been quite familiar with psalms and prayers of thanksgiving, but that's where this man's prayer is so striking. Because the psalms of thanksgiving, if you were to go and read them, if you read one of them this evening, spend the majority of their time praising God for the great things that he has done on our behalf. This Pharisee has replaced God and his good deeds with himself and his own good deeds, revealing that he doesn't actually love God. He only loves himself. But there's our man to ask He's still at a distance, and he won't even look up. He just beats his breast and says, Oh God, have mercy on me, sir. Alan Jacobs, who, like George Whitfield, is a good Anglican, teaches down at Baylor University. He talks about church architecture during the Middle Ages. Churches then were nearly universally situated oriented toward the east. Okay? You guys know what direction we're facing right now? North. This church was built in the 1950s. It's a little different. But always, you would enter in, there would be the altar, and you would be facing east, and you would say your prayers to the east. Everything was focused there. You were drawn to the altar, the place of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. But at the west, let's just pretend that we're shifting, okay? Above the doors where you entered, there was often what's commonly called a judgment of them. And this would have been ornate stained glass that in some way or another depicts the final judgment. Christ seated on a throne, humanity in the earth at his feet, light streaming in around him as he prepares to judge all nations. Now in the Christian peace, the images were a bit different, but the meaning was much the same. The Orthodox Church would often have a dome in the center of the church, and painted in the dome in the center of the church was often a large icon called Christ Pitocrator. Pitocrator is a Greek word that means all-powerful or almighty, but it's the Greek translation in the Hebrew Bible for the, for the term Lord of Hosts, Yahweh Sabbath. This is God's fighting name. It's the name that he puts on when he's getting ready to judge all of the nations of the earth for the ways that they have mistreated his law and his people. Photographer image, I have one in my office, isn't particularly comforting. The face of Christ is a little bit disjointed and it's done purposefully. One eye is gazing up in judgment, one eye is gazing a little bit down in pity. The judgment window, likewise, was not comfortable. As Jacobs describes it, faithful Christians, especially in the architecture of the West, found themselves caught between judgment and atonement, between the Lord of hosts who comes to judge the earth and the Lamb of God who took judgment on himself for their and our sake. The tax collector in our parable remembers something very important that I think tends to get 
It's not a whoopsie daisy. It's not a ah shucks. Try better next time. God is not a grandpa who leaps and hands out candy and then pretends to be asleep when we go around tearing up his curb. And we say in the creed every week, Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. You know when you just narrowly avoided a car accident in your sinuses, you didn't realize where the blood would all of a sudden totally clear? Seeing Christ in glory is that times a thousand. As Jacobs says, I suspect that for many Christians, the experience of seeing that judgment window in church in the late afternoon as the sun flashed the glass into brilliance was simply no one walked into that church of whatever rank or wealth or wit or skill and could claim to be immune to that judgment or capable of negotiating with the judge. This is what the tax collector understood. There's no deal to be struck here. Only a prideful fool would assume that simply by distracting God with worse examples of people could they get away from the judgment lodged against their Pride is the thing that sends the Pharisee home unjustified. Because we are told God resists the proud, but gives grace to them. As Cyril, one of the early fathers of the church, said, Pride is foreign to the mind that fears God. But notice another key thing about our man's here. He realizes that he can't hide from do you notice where he is? He's not in a bar drunk somewhere trying to forget what's going to happen at the end. He comes right to the temple. He doesn't assume that he can somehow worship God in nature. No, he comes to the place of sacrifice. Because hidden around the edges of his little seven-word prayer is his recognition that he needs atonement. The word that he uses for mercy is a word that means quite literally mercy forgiveness. This tax collector seems to understand at a visceral level that his sinfulness requires a sacrifice and it's one that he is unable to make. And so rather than hide from God, he comes to the place of God's presence, to the place of the sacrifice. And it is in this trust, this deep abiding hope in the midst of self-despair God's goodness and mercy will somehow provide a way back for him. But he goes home justified. It's in the hope and trust that God is good, not lazy. He doesn't hope that he can get one past him. This is what it means to hope in God, is to recognize that no matter your social standing, no matter your amount of good deeds or your intellectual abilities, your bank account, your skillful negotiating, none of it will
and that we cannot find hope in ourselves, that we cannot negotiate with the judge, we come to this place and we get on our knees and we say the sinner's prayer. Oh God, have mercy on me, sinner. And in joy we get up and we come and we feast at the place of sacrifice and we go home justified.